Yes And Cafe, a podcast where we explore, learn, and create with ordinary people who do extraordinary things. Yes And is the powerful, intentional, and creative practice of building with other people. The name comes from improvisational theater. So what is it? One, paying attention. Two, affirming. And three, building on what others give you. That's it. Yes And. I'm Nadja. And I'm Omar. And we're broadcasting from the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this, our first remote recording of the Yes And Cafe. We are back in the midst of the pandemic, and our thoughts go out to all of you everywhere, wherever you are. I'm Nadja Cech. And I'm Omar. And we're here in our various remote locations recording with some really excellent guests today. Our first guest is Steve Poliak. He's a research professor at the Department of Laboratory Medicine at the University of Washington, Seattle. He's been there since 2000. And Dr. Poliak has a PhD in virology from McMaster University in Canada. And he has worked extensively on research to find new ways to treat infections, particularly viruses. Apropos of now, he's worked on viruses like hepatitis C, Ebola, and now COVID-19. So Steve work has been published extensively and cited more than 8,000 times. He's also a feature at virology conferences where his band, Stark Polaris, performs science-inspired songs such as I Want to Be a PhD. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Nadja and Omar. It's an honor to be here. Steve, I'll start out with our first question today. We decided to talk with you today partly because obviously you and I have a long collaborative relationship and it's exciting to um, have the opportunity to reconnect. And also because we thought that people listening would like to hear about the work that you're doing right now. So can you tell us a little bit about the work that you have done in the past and what you're doing now looking for new ways to treat COVID-19? Yeah, thank you. Um, again, it's great to be here. Um, it's a sunny Seattle morning. I uh, hope it's similar for you in Greensboro. Uh, yeah, I'm a virologist and cell biologist by training. Um, I've done a lot of work on hepatitis C, um, antiviral treatment, interferon-based treatment. And more recently, my lab has shifted to repurposing of approved drugs for uh, virus outbreak control. And so we've done some work in Ebola and more recently in Lassa um, and writing a new manuscript uh, for arenaviruses. And we've just kind of jumped into the work on for COVID-19 disease caused by the new SARS coronavirus 2. And the focus is very simple, but it's just to find combinations of approved drugs that synergistically inhibit the virus because people are desperate for therapies and we don't have any therapies. And it's going to be a while, I think, before we see vaccines and antibodies um, and designer drugs. Now, are you doing that because you are trying to sort of accelerate the process that is trying to go with approved drugs? Is that the basic idea? Well, if you think about it, uh, vaccines and antibodies and even designer drugs specifically directed against viral proteins and enzymes, uh, they require knowledge of the viral sequence. And even though we as a scientific community rapidly identified the new coronavirus, it takes time to develop vaccines and antibodies and designer drugs. So there, we really have no frontline antiviral countermeasure that can be immediately deployed when a new virus emerges 
emerges or an existing virus like Ebola reemerges. I mean, we have an Ebola vaccine now, but for this virus, we don't have anything. And so you've, we, I'm sure we've all heard about the work that's going on with hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. So studies that have emerged from uh, drug repurposing efforts for Ebola, SAR, the original SARS from 20 years ago, and MERS, Middle Eastern uh, Respiratory Syndrome virus, have shown that uh, many FDA-approved drugs inhibit the viruses quite potently in at least cell culture systems. So there are clinical trials ongoing right now for hydroxychloroquine and the antibiotic azithromycin. There are a list of several other approved drugs that might have potential clinical benefit for COVID-19 disease presently, but there's also the possibility of developing combinations for future outbreaks. So Steve, I think this idea of combinations is really interesting. And it sounds like it's something that's unique about the work that you're doing is rather than take a single drug to try to treat the disease, look at multiple drugs together. What's the advantage of using more than one? Oh, it's a great question. And first of all, I should say to those who are listening, we need to be very careful about just starting to take approved drugs without, I I caution you, I mean, people have done that and have suffered some fatal consequences for taking drugs inappropriately. So we need to study these drugs and drug combinations properly in randomized placebo-controlled studies. So as a scientist we, and a virologist, we need to be really responsible about communicating that. But the key point about using combination is that it's a central tenet of antiviral therapy, that all effective antiviral therapies are a combination of drugs. And that's true for highly active antiretroviral therapy for HIV, And it's true for cures of hepatitis C virus, the virus that I've worked on for much of my career. It's always a mixture of at least two or three drugs with the idea that if you hit a virus at multiple points in its life cycle, you can really shut down the virus. And because these are RNA viruses that are mostly the ones that are plaguing us, influenza, flaviviruses like dengue, uh, several coronaviruses, including SARS-CoV-2, these viruses, they create mutations all the time. So there's a potential for resistance with single drug monotherapies. So we really need to treat them with combination. You have been working in virology for decades. What is it like right now to be a virologist working in the midst of this pandemic? How has your research changed? How has your life changed since this outbreak of the coronavirus? Yeah, I'm smiling because I think the best response to your question is encapsulated by the post I did a couple weeks ago on Twitter, where I announced that I had received some pilot funding from Washington Research Foundation. And my quote was, and I'll quote it again, it took a pandemic for my research to become relevant, which I actually feel a little guilty about considering all the suffering that's going on globally. And it also provides an opportunity to bring the concept and the potential promise of drug repurposing to the forefront. And I'm glad to see it being discussed, but I think the conversation needs to continue. So how it's affected my life, I have went from, because of struggles with funding, as you know, Naja, because we've collaborated before. Yes. <laughs> and all scientists struggle with funding. That's the experience of being a scientist. Yeah, so I've done a lot of work on natural products for about 10 or 
15 years, and that research has struggled um, the last few years. So I went basically from facing a situation where at the beginning of March to of closing my lab and taking a significant pay cut myself at the beginning of March to not having to experience those things as a result of COVID-19 and this new virus. So there is suddenly great potential for funding. I've already received funding. I just received a one-year grant on a hepatitis C virus project on Tuesday, which now qualifies me to obtain emergency supplemental funding from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. So I'm working on that. So suddenly there's all kinds of attention on virologists, which I am thrilled to see. I am thrilled to see so much of a sort of a public hunger for knowledge about the virus. Well, it strikes me that, you know, knowing you, like many scientists have been sort of eking along for years, trying to keep your research group open, and that that was critical for you to be doing that because now it means that you do have a research group still. And so when it's needed, you're able to snap into action. <laughs> so thank you for continuing to work on viruses in the background when nobody was paying much attention and being able to now mobilize to address a crisis. That's pretty cool. Yeah, thank you. I'm extremely grateful and humbled for the opportunity. It's kind of a strange situation because my other realization through this whole thing, I mean, we've had four major viral outbreaks since 2014 when the when the biggest Ebola outbreak hit. We've had Ebola, we've had Zika, we've had Ebola again in the Democratic Republic of Congo or DRC, and now we have this new coronavirus. And we're still, as a society, both scientifically and publicly and administratively, we are reacting to viral outbreaks and pandemics. We really have no proactive forward-thinking strategy. And I think that's what's missing. And so my concern is, is that there's a lot of money now being directed to both clinical and basic research for this virus. And that's going to continue for a while and so it represents opportunities for virologists, scientists, and clinicians alike. But if the history is any indicator, this money is going to come and it's going to go away just like the virus. But I think we're seeing the devastating toll on health and global economies. We really need to start talking about changing the paradigm for preparing for viral outbreaks because history has also taught us that there are going to be other viral outbreaks. Is it safe or is it appropriate to say that part of preparing is doing the kind of collaborative work that I know that you and Nanja have done and that I know probably you have done with other people as a way of maximizing sort of the research findings across the nation, across the world? Because it seems like that oftentimes things are set up in opposition in terms of academia, that, you know, people are trying to get the pub their paper published first for, you know, promotion and for, you know, for funding purposes, but that there's there's a need to do more collaborative work. Because I was just thinking about how the, the ways in which we've done things may not be serving us well, to your point about a new paradigm being needed. And I was wondering what you thought about that or if that is a way of thinking of it that is helpful. Yeah, as I'm listening to your comment and question, I'm nodding my head for those people at home listening to this or on the road. 
I totally agree. I, much of academic research, as we all know, is rather siloed, or there are select groups who are large who are receive a lot of the funding. And I think, I, I mean, I, I love scientific collaborations. I thrive on them. I have a small research group, but we are uh, very effective collaborators. And to tackle any kind of global health issue like this pandemic represents, you have to have expertise from all walks of life, from the natural product chemists to the synthetic chemists to, uh, you name it, to the biologists, the virologists, the clinicians, the global health policy experts, to intellectual property. So it, it, it is rather siloed and there is really no coordinated response. I mean, I, I think countries can coordinate uh, within themselves and agencies like the WHO, World Health Organization, try to um, organize it. But every country has different priorities. So how do you convince countries with varying GDPs to say, you need to invest in this because of what's happening now? Just look, there's a great example. So um, it's probably a little bit beyond my wheelhouse and how to sort of fix that from a I don't even know if it's regulatory, but I think we are seeing a lot of scientific goodwill. If you just look on Twitter, there's papers published on bioarchives daily on this. So people are sharing their data. They're trying to make it open source. I've heard talk of open source clinical trials. So I agree with the concept that we need to be collaborative, but I think we still have a lot of work to do. I like the comment you just made about Twitter. Can you tell us about papers being published in an open source fashion? Like for the non-scientists listening, what does that mean? How is that different from what we normally do? Yeah. So the, the traditional approach in science is that you do your work, you share it with your collaborators, but you're very worried about uh, being scooped by others. It's like, you know, an old school when you were um, at your desk and you didn't want anybody to copy from you. So you would put your arms around your paper and pen and hunker down for your exam. So science has historically been like that. You keep it to yourself, you keep it to your collaborators, and then you want to be first to publish it and you send it to peer reviewed journals and they can sometimes take several months before it even gets published. In the past few years, there's been a huge trend towards open source release of data. And uh, there are Cold Spring Harbor has this platform called BioArchives, where uh, when your paper is ready for submission, you can post it for immediate public release on BioArchives. Now, that just shows the public and anybody who is out there interested in the research that you were you put it on the site on this day and time. So effectively, that allows you to put a stake in the ground. But the caveat is that this work is not yet peer reviewed, but it's publicly viewable. The really cool thing about sites like BioArchive is that they work with a number of journals and they can actually, with a few clicks of a button, you can get your manuscript that you've submitted on BioArchives for public viewing. It can get directed to a journal of your choice for peer review. So I think that's a really good system for scientific transparency. I, I think it helps move the field forward. But as scientists and the public, we need to be careful about everything that we review on these open source, non-peer-reviewed sites. And when it's finally peer-reviewed, there's at least a level of rigor that's been applied to it. But it can be used to move research ahead more quickly. So what does it look like to do good collaborative scientific research. You mentioned that, that you have a good research group that you collaborate well. So what does it look like for you within your research group and then also sort of across the nation, across the world? What is a good practice, if you will? 
Yeah, I think it embodies the the title of your podcast, and it's the yes and approach. It's yes, I love coffee, so yes and cafe is wonderful. When Nadja asked me to be on here, I said yes and yes. So I think having that, <laughs> so I think having that approach of really welcoming input and feedback. And I try to do that and espouse that with my uh, research group that I want everybody to feel that they can add something regardless of the level of training or expertise. So it can be from undergraduate to graduate to postdoc, you know, the whole gamut, research technologists versus postdocs versus faculty members. So I encourage that. And I like to receive input and feedback. And those are the collaborators that I like to work work with. And I also really value people who say, okay, I'm going to do this. And I got your back when we're writing this manuscript or this grant application. And they actually do that. It's people that you that have an integrity to do what they say they're going to do. And we're all busy. So it's completely fine if people say, oh, I can't get to this right now, but I will get to this. And so I really like clear communication. And I really try to offer that. And I've found time and time again, that there's many people who ascribe to that. And the really cool thing is, is that if you don't have to be friends to do good work together, but it really helps if you can develop relationships. And yet the personal relationship can be sort of exist side by side with the professional relationship. Because let's face it, we spend a lot of time at work and with work, whatever our career is with. So it makes it more, I think, at least for me, fulfilling to know that you're making a contribution to both science and someone else's life is being enriched by your interactions. I like getting stuff done, but for me, it's more than that. Uh, My own experience of working with you, Steve, is absolutely that, you know, we started working together, I think, because we met if I recall, at a grant review panel at the National Institutes of Health, but we have been working together for years and have a, a friendship as a result of that. And it's, I think, focusing on on building relationships as a way to enhance science is really a big part of what we do. And it's also makes it so much more enjoyable. So I'm just really relating to what you're saying. It's important for me. Uh, it's not important for everyone I work with, and that's fine too. So it's it's not like if you can't be my friend, we can't collaborate because I work with people who get stuff done and that's also needed as well. But for me, the the bigger perspective of sort of feeling fulfilled in what you do, not only at work, but in your life, that's also part of it. And it's important to me and I value that. And it's really up to everybody to decide what, you know, this works for me, but it's uh, for people to decide what kind of mix they want for themselves and their families and relationships. So Steve, uh, you were talking about the importance of including many different perspectives and voices in doing research. And that's something that I think about a lot too, involving undergraduates and graduate students in the creative process and how much we benefit from having those with outside perspectives as part of the conversation. And related to that, we actually have a student who's been on the line listening today who's going to join us. So I'd actually like to bring her into the conversation. I'd like to introduce Gabby Daly, who's a PhD student at the University of North Carolina Greensboro. And Gabby is a National Institutes of Health Research Fellow who's working in Will Taylor's group. And she has a BS in biochemistry from NC State University. And like Dr. Poliak, she is doing research in virology. Her project involves understanding the role of the trace element selenium, which is a necessary component of the human diet, 
in infection by viruses such as Zika. Gabby also won UNCG's three-minute thesis competition this year, so she's great at explaining her work to non-scientists. And Gabby, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you all are doing well. Yes. Yes, welcome. So Gabby, uh, in listening to the conversation, do you have any thoughts about some of the comments that Dr. Poliak has made? They've all been just, it's overwhelming because I enjoyed listening to everything Dr. Poliak was saying and everything you all were saying about collaborating and science as a whole. I think there's a lot of public distrust about scientists, and I don't think a lot of people understand, not necessarily like the science behind science, like the hard stuff that we go to classes for, but I don't think people understand how science is made or how science necessarily works. And what a process it is. I think people think that an answer comes very quickly and that it can't be refuted. Like if one lab comes up with maybe a possible treatment, but another study is published, they think automatically the other lab is wrong. And I think it just causes some um, distrust that we all as a community need to work on. So Gabby, are there ways in which your research has been impacted or your and or your personal life by this present pandemic or your thinking about science? My personal life's definitely been a little impacted. It's just I didn't realize how many people I interacted with on a daily basis until they all went away. So it's been a little bit uh, hard to stay motivated. I've been coming to lab every now and then just because I have cell culture going. So it hasn't really changed my life that much other than the fact that I'm just sort of one only maybe five to 10 people in the building at a given time. So other than just isolation, nothing's really changed for me. But it has a, we hear a lot about different opinions about vaccines and things like that. But it's just crazy sort of to see how the world reacts right now to just not having one vaccine. Just by the way, we're all learning this. So this is really interesting how we're um, navigating the 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 fact that we can't see each other to be able to give each other cues. This is really interesting. Uh, that's an interesting challenge. Okay, so Gabby, one of the things that I've always been curious about as somebody who's um, who's not a scientist but really loves science and works with a very wonderful and dear uh, scientist in the form of Nadja Czech, who I co-teach a class with and do work with. And I've learned so much from her and I've really been inspired to continue my studies uh, in biology, which I really stopped doing at the end of high school. And I was wondering for you, it's a question I've asked Dr. Czech about before, but when did you and when did you decide that you wanted to be a scientist? So I started off at UNCG during my undergrad and I was a psychology major for a couple years. And then I decided that I wanted to do more environmental science because I thought it was a little bit more relevant. And uh, then I met my then boyfriend, but now husband, and he moved to Raleigh. And I wanted to move to Raleigh with him, I guess, because I'm codependent. And I decided to transfer to NC State. And the only program I could transfer into directly was biochemistry, actually. So I transferred into biochemistry and they make you take an introductory class where you sort of have to go chore labs and stuff like that. And I met the first PI I would end up working for, Dr. Ben Bobe, and he let me into his lab and he was doing research on plant viruses. And I just really enjoyed the freedom that I thought research brought. I enjoyed being able to make my own schedule. I enjoyed problem solving, and I enjoyed the people it brought me into contact with, and I've just been hooked ever since. That's great. That's amazing. Steve, what about you? Yeah, that's a great story, Gabby. Uh, Mine goes back to 10th grade. I learned about cells and cell division, and I learned about 
little bit about DNA, but especially transcription and translation. And then I kind of forgot about it. And, and then I was in third year undergrad, my junior year at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. And I was going more towards sort of like physiology because my dad wanted me to become a medical doctor. And I took this uh, molecular biology class and then the transcription and translation and genetics and all those things came up again. And that's, it was, for me, it was like a, it was a pivotal moment. It was like a light went off. It's like, oh my gosh, this is just like 10th grade. I love this stuff. <laughs> and, and then in my senior year, I took a, a virology class and an immunology class. And it's like, oh boy. So I'm, I'm rubbing my hands together like uh, Mr. Evil. I got my little finger <laughs> on my lip. Um, uh, it's like, I want to do this. And I have a Bachelor of Science in Biology, and I wanted to use it. And I got myself into a lab in a virology lab. And that's where how it went. And I was in a master's program. And I applied for this scholarship that I got, but I had to be in a PhD. Like, because in Canada, you start in your master's, at least when I was doing it, you start in your master's. And if your project's good enough, and you're good enough, you can transfer into your PhD. So when I got this, I think it was a Ontario or no, it was a federal um, scholarship, it required that I get my PhD. And it's like, oh, okay, I guess I'm getting my PhD. And fortunately, my project was good enough. And I, I made the cut. So yeah, that's kind of how it went for me. And the rest is history. Yep. Look at us now. Look at us now. I was going to suggest that perhaps, Steve, I know that as well as being a scientist, as I mentioned in the introduction, you're also a guitarist and you do some science-inspired songs. And so I was wondering if you might be willing to uh, either comment on that and or uh, play something off the cuff for us. Twist my arm. Okay, it moved about two degrees. Um, I'd be happy to do it. I'm set up to do it. And sort of the history for me is I grew up with a very musical mother. And so I grew up singing in harmony with her and my sister. She got the piano lessons. I didn't because I was playing competitive hockey at the time, you know, growing up in Canada, you kind of a requirement. Um, and I still play hockey today. But in first year university, someone showed me the riff to the opening of Stairway to Heaven. And and that was it. So what you were about to hear is from a guy who is self-taught and playing guitar. And I've also had the really wonderful opportunity of playing guitar at a social event in the lobby at a meeting that uh, Nudge and I were at. So I got to play with Nudge's husband, who is an amazing musician. Yeah, shout out to Gavin Douglas. Yeah, yeah. Way to go, Gavin. I want to play again with you. I am going to just unplug my headphone and then uh, I have to sit across the room where my guitar is. So I'm, I'll do that now. So this is a song about, I actually wrote a song called I Want to Be a PhD a few years ago. And uh, I repurposed it for uh, COVID-19 um, because I thought it was appropriate since I'm trying to repurpose approved drugs um, for uh, virus control. And it's called Go V2 Away. Thank you. 
COVID to go away. We're working hard so you can go and play. We want to see COVID to go away. But for now, please shelter where you stay. It is fun to be on faculty. All the students like to talk to me. I go to Zoom symposiums and talk virus ad nauseum. I think I need a Valium. We want to see COVID to go away. We're working hard so you can go and play with your friends. We want to see COVID to go away. But for now, shelter where you stay. I'll make up with you today. This pandemic won't walk us silently away. And if it does, we still will say. So we see pandemics go away we're working hard so you can go and play with anyone we want to see pandemics go away but for now listen to Fauci that was awesome that goes out to all the healthcare workers and the scientists who are working hard for us all. Thank you very much. Thank you all. That was great. That was amazing. <laughs> Love it. You heard it here first on the SAM Cafe. Before we wrap up today, I uh, want to hear one more time from Gabby. Gabby, do you have any comments uh, to add to the conversation? I just, um, I really enjoyed uh, Dr. Polyak's uh, song. I was waiting for, um, I really like the volume. Uh, <laughs> I think that's how we're all uh, feeling right now. I guess the only thing I can add is just I'm looking forward to this being over too. I'm ready for life to return back to normal. I know it's just a a lot of we're we're really fortunate because of where we are. We get to stay in like comfy homes or comfy apartments with people we love. And so there's not a whole lot of room to complain, but I just, I'm ready for things to be back to normal too. It'll be nice to see everybody again and go to seminars and stuff that I didn't used to look forward to that now I am looking forward to. It puts some interesting perspective on life, doesn't it? It really does. And thank you guys so much for having me again. Yeah. Thanks for being here, Gabby. Thanks for being here, Steve and Omar. It's been a really great conversation. Yeah. Thank you all. Thanks everyone. Thank you. It was my distinct pleasure. Uh, really nice uh, meeting you all in this uh, medium. All right, everyone. Well, be safe. Stay at home. Uh, again, our, our appreciation goes out to everyone in the world who's working in various ways to help address the pandemic. And it's been a pleasure to be here with all of you today. Thank you. Many thanks to the University Teaching and Learning Center that provided the recording studio, to Ashley Scott, who did our logo, to Lloyd International Honors College, to University Communications, including our production team, Matt Bryant and Ben Peterson. 